Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Very important. It is very important for you to come to church next Sunday because we are introducing to you our vision for this year and the coming years here at Littlestown Chapel. So we'll be sharing that with you starting next week. And I just ask you to put that on your calendar and make sure you're here. If it's a snow day and we can't have worship here at the church, we'll do it the next week. But whatever happens that way, we want you to be here for that next Sunday as we unveil the vision that God has given us. It's 2020, right? So you need to have accurate vision to see the future of what God is doing here at the chapel as well. And I invite you to be part of that service next Sunday. It's about 23, almost 24 years ago when Dawn and I and our five kids moved in on Sherwood Street the people from the chapel were helping us move in. We had like 10 little pickup trucks with all our earthly belongings. We came up from Carroll County into, into Hanover, Pennsylvania. They led us across the border safely and we came into Pennsylvania and we came, found our way to Sherwood Street on the north end of Hanover and one after another, one of the little pickup trucks backed up into the driveway. We unloaded all this stuff, moved it around the house and then that truck would pull out and park down the street and then the next one would pull in and it was his assembly line and one of my neighbors just made a comment of like, I didn't know one church could have that many pickup trucks in it and that's, that's true. It did look like that. But the highlight of that day was not just moving in and spending our first night in our new home there on Sherwood Street. It was while we were working, we took a break and all of us from the chapel, we were, we were just sitting around, you know, they're, they're trying to get to know me. I, I've been pastor at the chapel for, you know, about nine months at that time. And so we're still kind of getting to know each other. The assistant pastor, Pastor Schuler, was there with us and all these other folks that had all these pickup trucks who had been muscling in all our furniture. And we're sitting under the big maple trees in our front yard and we were just kind of visiting and socializing when all of a sudden this little old lady from across the street walks up with this giant silver platter stacked with homemade fresh out of the oven chocolate chip cookies it was Carla and Carla came over introduced herself and said welcome to the neighborhood I brought cookies for you and all your friends here we're just so glad you're here and she just was fun, just fun and pleasant and we chatted and we're eating cookies and anybody that brings me cookies I'm always friends with them and you know just it was just a pleasant wonderful thing and over the years Carla and her husband Max would talk with us we'd go out to dinner together we would visit Max came over to my house one day with a stack of papers he says Scott have you been thinking about refinancing your house and, you know, he's speaking like a dad to Sonny Boy here a little bit. And uh, he said, well, I don't know the rates and I don't know what I would do. I'm just kind of acting like I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing. And he says, I really think you should think about this. And he handed me a wad of papers that he had printed off the Internet about why now was the right time to refinance. And a little later, when the rates really dropped, we did that. And I went over, I said, Max, I would have never done that without you. Thank you for helping me with that. And there just were other times 
they reached out to us and we could help them watch their house when they went on vacation. Now, if the snow gets too high, you need to scoop it away from the vent where the, you know, the stuff comes out of the furnace. And, and we, just, we just enjoyed being neighbors. As you begin 2020, the first Sunday of the new year, the first Sunday of the new decade, Pastor Josh and I have wanted to challenge ourselves and the church family to think about what's the most important in our lives and start doing those things. You know, we, we realize that some of us are making New Year's resolutions, and even if you don't really call it a resolution, because that's kind of getting out of style these days, but even if you've got a goal, I'm going to lose weight this year, I'm going to go to the doctor this year, I'm going to take that class this year, I'm going to get my financial house in order, I'm going to pay down this debt this year, whatever it is, whatever you're saying is your goal this year, that's great, you should work toward it, I'm going to spend more time with my kids this year, that's wonderful, I'm going to work on my marriage this year, great, we've got a conference for that coming up in a couple weeks. All those things are wonderful goals to have. But the problem is that so often we set goals and they're out of alignment with what God would want. Have you ever driven a car with the wheels that are out of alignment? You know what that's like. You're driving along and they just, it kind of just wants to keep going one direction or the other. Because that one wheel or those two wheels are just, they're, they're not rolling straight. They're rolling crooked because you hit that pothole back on New Year's Eve and it knocked everything out of alignment. Our lives are a lot like that. We've got to get back in alignment with what God's will is for our lives, with what's most important. You know, maybe it is something with that job, but is it in alignment with what God wants? Yes, your family's important, but is that what you're doing in alignment? Is it lined up with God's will and His plan? We have to constantly pull our lives back that they're in alignment with what His plan and His program is for our lives. Well, that's great, Pastor, but how do you know what God wants you to do? Well, as Pastor Josh mentioned last week, Jesus made it very clear that there are two commandments that are the most important things that anybody could ever do with their lives. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, you need to love God unlimitedly. Love God without any limitations whatsoever. You love Him with everything you've got. And the second commandment that's part of that great commandment package is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pastor Josh used the story of the, the rich ruler that came to Jesus who said, I love God, I keep his commandments. And Jesus then says, well, let's see if you really love God. How about you sell all your wealth, give it to the poor, and come follow me? And the young man was not willing to do that. It showed that he really didn't love God with everything he had. He loved his money and his wealth more, his security more. In this passage that we're going to look at today, another very familiar passage, we're going to see and focus on the fact that we are called to love God with everything that we have, but we have to show that by how we love our neighbors. Do we even love our neighbors, and do we love our neighbors as ourselves? I'd like to invite you to take your Bible, please, and let's turn to Luke's Gospel the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, and we'll start reading at verse 25. If you'd like to use the Bible from the chair in front of you, it's on page 869, 869, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Okay? I tell you, neighbors are so important. They're the first responders when you have an emergency. 
If you wait for your parents to come, if you wait for your kids to come, if you wait for somebody from work to come, you might be waiting for a long time. But if a neighbor sees you're having a fire, or the neighbor sees that your dog has run away, or the neighbor sees your child wandering down the street when they're not supposed to be wandering down the street, that little toddler, they're the ones that are gonna come to the rescue and help. They're the ones who are the first responders. And that's why being a neighbor is so important because we are responding for the sake of Christ to the people who are around us. So we have this command that we're supposed to love one another and love our neighbor as ourselves. What does that look like? Well, listen as Jesus explains. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. So the question is, what's the most important thing that we can do with our lives? And the answer is, you love God with everything that you have, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You love God unlimitedly, and you love your neighbor unconditionally. You love them that way. In fact, I think what Jesus is trying to say is that there's nothing else more important than getting these two things straight in your life, that you love God and that you love your neighbor. But the problem is, and the lawyer senses this, and you and I kind of realize this as well, is that we can tell people and say, oh, I love God. I love him with everything I have. Oh, my heart is full of love for God. I think about him all the time. I pray to him all the time. And you know what? No one will ever know whether you love God that way or not. There's no way that you can see it in somebody else. You only go by what they say. But this business of loving your neighbor, you can't hide that. You either love your neighbor or you don't. You either love them and serve them like you love yourself and serve yourself, or you don't. And so he's well aware here, he understands here that he needs to kind of justify himself and make an excuse because he thought he was doing really good in loving God, but maybe he was struggling to love his neighbor. And the reason why he was struggling to love his neighbor is because there was a lot of debate as to who was your neighbor. 
the lawyer, Jesus, they're quoting scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 about loving God, and Leviticus chapter 19 about loving your neighbor as yourself. So the rabbis, the scholars, they agreed these were the most important commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. They agreed on that. But there was a lot of debate as to who's your neighbor. I know that sounds a little funny, but we do the same kind of thing. Now, let's be honest. If we say, my neighbor is everybody, then your neighbor is nobody. If we say, I, everybody is my neighbor, then nobody is your neighbor, because you can't love everybody. So that's, that does, that's not a good answer. But among the Jewish people, they would say, well, it's my, it's my brother Israelite. You know, I, I, my neighbor is the, is the Jewish people. I don't have to love those pagan Gentiles. I don't have to love those mixed up crazy Samaritans. We hate them. They're not our neighbors. And so we don't have to love them. We just have to love our, our fellow Jews. Uh, they, we don't have to love the Roman soldiers that are occupying our country. We don't have to love them at all. And so they, they thought that. Some would even say, well, you know, I love my rabbi. I love the people in my synagogue. They're my neighbors. I love my family. They're my neighbors. There were even some uh, Jewish groups, one group in particular, they were called the Essenes. They were the ones who were by the Dead Sea. They had their own separate, almost like a monastic community. Uh, it was called Qumran. They were the ones that copied the Dead Sea Scrolls and hid them away in clay jars that were found in 1947 and their great archaeological treasure trove of, of manuscripts of the Old Testament. And so the Essenes had, had done all this, but they had a rule of life for their community and they said, if you're not a member of our community, God's going to kill you. God's going to send you to hell. God hates you because we're the only ones who are the right people. You know, kind of like the guy they prayed, you know, God bless me and my wife, my son and his wife, us four, no more. And that was, that was their attitude. And a lot of people interpreted the neighbor that way. It's only the people who are like me. It's only the people I like. And I appreciate something that G.K. Chesterton said. G.K. Chesterton was a uh, forerunner of uh, C.S. Lewis, he was an apologist for the faith, he was a, a, a writer, an orator, a philosopher, and uh, G.K. Chesterton said, you know, the Bible says, love your neighbor and love your enemies, because often your neighbor and your enemies are the same people. Often the people who live near you or are next to you at work or at school are people you have a difficult time getting along with. But the scripture doesn't give us a way out to avoid the jerks in our lives or the people that are not very kind to us or like us. Jesus is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the scripture teaches. And even if they have the political party sign that you don't agree with in their yard, even though you feel like sneaking over in the middle of the night, tearing it out and ripping it up, you're to love them. And even if they're a different color than you, we're to love them. And even if they're a different age or generation than us, or even if they go around saying all kinds of terrible things about other people, we're still to love them and be their neighbor. And the lawyer here says, but they're people I don't like. They're people that are against me. They're people who hate me. I'm supposed to love them. Are they my neighbor? And the thing that's interesting is that Jesus, as he deals with this man trying to justify himself, he doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? He says, the question is, will you be a neighbor? You know, where did Fred Rogers get, won't you be my neighbor? Well, it was Jesus. And Fred Rogers would, have, would tell you that. If he were alive today, he would tell you that. I got it from Jesus. Will you be a neighbor? 
And so the story that he tells of the Good Samaritan, it's really how to be a good neighbor. What is a neighbor? And by the way, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other so much that the word, the phrase, good Samaritan, would never come out of the mouth of a Jewish person. Those dirty, rotten, filthy Samaritans, those pagan Samaritans, those wicked Samaritans, those evil Samaritans, I hate those Samaritans. That's what would come out of the Jewish person's mouth. And to be fair, if you were talking about the Jews with the Samaritans, they would say, good Jew, that never would cross their, come out of their mouths either. They hated each other. They fought against each other. They had terrorist cells that would often sneak into Israel and, and, and vandalize the temple. And they had Jewish terrorist cells that would sneak into Samaria and they would vandalize their temple in places of worship and they would insult each other and call each other's names and ridicule and mock each other. They would do all this kind of stuff. They didn't get along with each other and yet Jesus uses the Samaritan and Jew to tell the story about you be a neighbor to even people who are different than you and who don't like you and who may even hate you because we're called to be a neighbor to those who are around us. And so he tells the story. And the story, you're familiar with it. The trouble is, is these familiar stories we think we know, but often we miss what they're really saying. And these familiar stories are often the hardest to understand, and I admit that. But Jesus says this man, Jewish man, was traveling, and he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, and this, is a, this is a road that's about 17 miles long. It's very steep. Jerusalem's several thousand feet above sea level in the mountains. And Jericho was actually below sea level, about 900 feet along the, the Jordan River there. And it was a place where people from Jerusalem, the, the, the wealthy, the, the influential and powerful, they would like to travel south because the weather was a lot nicer there in Jericho than it was in Jerusalem, especially in the wintertime. It was warmer there. And so they would travel and do that. But the drawback was is this road went through the desert. It was very rocky. It was very hilly. There were a lot of caves and crevices and ravines. And people understood that if somebody was traveling, they were an easy mark to be mugged, to be assaulted. And so it would often be these gangs of robbers who would hide along the path. And if somebody who was coming in a small group or by themselves, they would be jumped. They would be mugged. They would be attacked. And that's exactly what happens to this man in the story. It says he fell among robbers. They surrounded, surrounded him and they, they beat him and they stripped him of his clothes and they, they took all his wealth and they left him half dead. And so there he is, this poor guy, he's got nothing. Maybe his animal's been stolen, a donkey or something, and his wealth is gone, he's, he's there, his clothes have been taken from him, and he's bruised and bloody and beaten and broken and bleeding there beside the road, and he's got nothing, nothing at all to help himself in any way. He's left half dead. Now you know this part of the story. A couple characters walk by and see him there lying along the road. First is a priest. Someone who led the temple ritual and worship, a keeper of the covenant of God. Somebody who was responsible to lead Israel in the worship of God. And when he comes upon this man laying beside the road, what does he do? He's done what I've done before. I don't want to talk to that person. I go over here like this, you know, cross over on the other side. Because I don't, look, I'm not the only one here that's done that. Have you ever gone to the other side of the street or taken a different stairwell or walked down another sidewalk because you didn't, want to talk to or meet somebody that you saw was coming up ahead. Have you ever done that? All right, well, I'm the only one then, okay. 
But the truth is, is we've all done things like that. We've waited a little bit to let them pass by, and then we go out, okay? Uh, we don't answer that phone call when it comes. Do you screen your calls? <laughs> I think we all do. Because we don't want to talk to certain people, or maybe it's just not the right time. We do that. That's what's happening here. The priest avoids the man laying beside the road. The Levite comes. The Levite's like the assistant priest. They were the police force that protected the temple, but they also helped in teaching the law and in administrating the sacrifices. So they're like the assistant priest. And this assistant priest comes down the road. See, the pastor's already gone by. Now the assistant pastor comes, and he passes by and doesn't want to have anything to do with the man laying along the side of the road either. They don't help this guy. They knew full well that the scripture says you're to love God with everything that you have and you're to love your neighbor as yourself, but they're not willing to love their fellow Jew in that way because he's been beaten up. Now, we need to cut them a little slack because maybe they were thinking some things. Maybe they were thinking, well, if I stop and help this guy, I I might be attacked too. So I need to stay safe. I I can't stop. You know, I need to get home. I need to get back to my wife and kids. Okay, so that's a possibility. Okay, you understand that they're, they're priests and Levites are involved in the temple ritual and, and sacrificial system and all that. So they, they've got to maintain an a ethical purity, a religious purity as well, a ritual purity. And the Jewish law said that if you come in contact with a corpse, a dead body, if you touch that dead body, you're defiled, you're dirty. And you can't be involved in any of the temple worship. And I think it was about seven days. You just, you need, to, you need to be in isolation during that time and not involved in that ritual. And the priest is maybe thinking, well, I can't get myself dirty. I've got these new robes. I can't get them dirty. I, I'm going to be defiled. I won't be able to take part in Sabbath prayers. I won't be able to socialize at the, at the synagogue. I won't be able to do those things. I'd have to stay away from folks. I, I'll be contaminated. I'll get these cooties if I do that. And maybe the Levite was thinking the same thing. And maybe they just were in a hurry. I don't have time. Sorry, buddy. I just don't have time. And I feel like that that's, that's the finger getting punched in my chest because I often say, I just don't have the time. I don't, I'm too busy. I don't have any margin in my life. I can't allow the interruption to come. And so they were maybe thinking that I've just got to get home. My wife's cooking dinner and I've got 10 more miles to hike. I, I can't get there. I've got this business meeting to go to. I can't, I can't stop now because I've got all this stuff with me and I might drop it along. I've got other things on my mind. I can't help this man. I can't do that. See, the thing is, is the priest and the Levite, they misunderstood a very important principle about life. And I think a lot of us Americans, I'll say I as an American feel this way here in the 21st century, is that I think life is at the end of the journey. It's a destination to get to. When life is actually found on the journey, you find it on the way with the people you meet and the circumstances you have. You know, we think about, oh, I'm on vacation. So, you know, shut up, kids. Stop talking. Stop yelling. Stop doing this. Get out of my way. And then, oh, now we're finally in Disneyland. Here we are. We can have a good time when that journey's the vacation too, see? They're thinking that I've gotta get to Jericho. I've gotta get to my vacation home. That's where life is when life is on the journey. 
you remember that in just a moment, okay? So the people listening to Jesus telling this story, they're kind of drawn in, and they probably identify themselves as the guy who's been beaten up and left for dead. They would probably see themselves as that poor guy that's been hurt, okay? They're the victim, and it's, that's reasonable. And they probably are not surprised that the priest and the Levite, those two religious snobs, didn't stop and help. They're probably not overly surprised by that. They maybe expected that. But what they're expecting, if Jesus is a good storyteller, is that he's probably going to say that this good rabbi this local Pharisee, this great religious leader, or maybe he himself, he's going to say himself, is going to come to the, 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 robber, the robbery victim's help. But Jesus throws a curve that makes them hit the deck. It just surprises them. Because he says, but a Samaritan. And at that moment, I think the listeners were probably struggling to keep listening because as soon as that word Samaritan came out of their mouth, his mouth, they said, what, what, what? A Samaritan? Those wicked, pagan, evil, stinky, filthy Samaritans? What? Why are you talking about him? Is he going to attack the man? Is he going to rob the man? Is he going to defile the body? What is he going to do? They're expecting that this man who's at his weakest, most vulnerable moment is probably going to be hurt by this Samaritan. But Jesus says this, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, what did he do? Spit at him? No. Kick him? Serves you right for being a dirty Jew. Serves you right for being, I was kind of dumb being out here by yourself. Don't you know any better? What did your mom teach you? He didn't do that. It says that he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on top of all that, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This Samaritan shows us how to be a good neighbor. This Samaritan is showing us how we do that greatest commandment of not only loving God, but loving our neighbor as ourselves. The first thing the Samaritan does when he sees the man, he has compassion for him. He looks at the man long enough and he sees the man in his brokenness and his great need, his weakness and his vulnerability and he's stirred inside his heart to help it. There was something moving inside of him to help this man. This compassion has welled up. Now the problem is, is often you and I don't have compassion who are in need because we don't do what the commandment says we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love our neighbor how? As we love God. Help me, as we love ourselves. In other words, when we see the man laying along the side of the road, when we see that neighbor, those kids that are running through our flower bed, that guy that's walking his dog past our house, when we see them, do we see ourselves in them? Do we see them? Or do we see ourselves? And the point is, is, well, of course I see them. It looks like them. No, no, but do you see yourself in them? 
And when you do that, you begin to have the kind of compassion for them because you're very compassionate to yourself, so am I. I'm very gentle and respectful to myself. I take good care of myself. I look out for myself, if you haven't already noticed. But so do you. And that's how we're to treat our neighbors. In fact, listen to me carefully. We need to actually discriminate in favor of our neighbors. In other words, we make a choice to benefit and put them first. In other words, we're biased toward helping them, blessing them, encouraging them, serving them, being there for them. We're biased in that way, discriminating in that way. We're making a conscious decision to put them first instead of ourselves because we would always put ourselves first. And we are to love them as we love ourselves. You have to be moved with compassion. And see, the thing is, to really get to that place of compassion, somehow we have to confront the fears that we have. I mean, the 24-hour news cycle is constantly telling us about people who do what's good and they wind up suffering for it. And there's all kinds of threats and dangers and violence in our communities and we're surprised and there's just all these things that just threaten us and it makes us afraid. And we're not only afraid of the potential danger that could come to us if we help somebody, but we're afraid that what kind of baggage are they going to bring? If I say hello to my neighbor and I start talking to him, he's going to monopolize my time for the next hour and I'm trying to get my lawn mowed because I'm going to have to listen to him. His kids are going to want to come over and play on my new swing set, my new playground that I just put in for my family. They're going to come and do that. They're going to want to have us over for dinner, and I don't like, I smell what they're cooking, and I don't want any of that. They're of another race. They're of another religion. They're of another political party. They're of another background or generation. They're different than me. I don't want to be with them. When, when we moved into our neighborhood, one of my neighbors later, not Carla, she was the nice neighbor. No, I actually, I have a neighborhood where all my neighbors are good. I ser- sincerely mean that. Um, but one of my neighbors, uh, his name is Carol, and he's since passed away. And uh, he used to always joke, he'd always call me Padre. Okay, Padre, so what, what's, what's going on here? And uh, he would ask me to do something about the weather. And I'd say, you know, he's the guy I always said, well, I'm in sales, not management, so I can't do anything about the weather, sorry. And... Um, but he would, he would just talk about our kids. He said, yeah, we heard you were moving in, and it was a pastor and his wife, and they're five little hellions, so we're, we're glad. This will be interesting. The first day that our kids were in the neighborhood, they decided to make a race course, and so they took big sidewalk chalk, and they drew these arrows down in front of everybody's house, down to the end of the block, and then arrows in the street, and then you're supposed to ride your bike or your, your scooter. You're supposed to do that. And, and Carol came out and said... We don't do that in our neighborhood. I'm sorry, Mr. Boyer. Okay, that way. But a great guy, and we loved him. But we were the obnoxious, loud pastor and his loud kids moving into the neighborhood. And it was, it was hard for them to accept us, and yet they did, and they welcomed us. You have to be willing to overcome the fear. What kind of baggage are they bringing? What kind of mess are they bringing? What kind of cultural things are they bringing that I feel uncomfortable about? I have a friend, a dear friend, who says, you know, I, I, uh, forgive me, 
I'm just going to say what he says. He says, I'll never vote for a Democrat. Uh, and we've asked him why. He says, they're all socialists. I know that's not true. But he thinks so. But I know Democrats would say the exact same kind of thing about Republicans. True? It's true. The thing is, you have to be willing to overcome the fear of the prejudice, the differences, the baggage they may bring to welcome them into our lives. That's what we're called to do if we love our neighbor as ourselves. The Samaritan, he's having compassion on this man and his problem has become, that man's problem has now become his problem. And when you're neighbors, you have to be willing to do that, to embrace that and take it. So we've got to reframe this fear because we all have fears and, and the fears are well-founded in many cases. But we need to reframe it by seeing that fear from God's point of view. I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a moment. The second thing that the Samaritan does to show us how to be a good neighbor, the right kind of neighbor that truly loves your neighbor as yourself, the Samaritan actually goes to the man. Okay, now, I know this seems a little obvious. I'm picking at little words here in a sentence. But it's interesting. He has compassion and he actually moves toward him. He actually gets involved with the man. He does the exact opposite of the priest and the Levite who, who shimmied down the other side of the street ignoring the man and his problem. He looked at the man. He saw the man. He saw the man in his great need and he moved toward him. He stooped down on the ground and he began to help him. He began to provide care for him. He got close to him. So he's probably swatting away flies. He's allowing the the blood that's all around him, the mud that's around him, the, the, the groans are filling his ear, the sweat and the tears are there, and it's all there, and he's right there involved with it. I struggle in being a neighbor because I'm busy, and I don't like to get interrupted. Sometimes if you call me on the phone and I don't answer right away, it's because I put my phone on do not disturb. Now, I promise you, I always take it off and I'll call you back. But there are times where I need to focus on getting my work done. So do you, right? We all have that. We've got to do that. But somehow we have to build into our lives margin so that we can be interrupted, so we can be available to help the people who step in who are our neighbors, the people who are nearby who need our help. We've got to be willing to do that. I heard about a very successful teacher on leadership. He was a great pastor, a great businessman, and he's taught so much about leadership. And he says how he plans his schedule, and he would design his schedule this way, that he would have his work done by Friday afternoon at lunch. And it's not so that he could go get a quick round of golf before he went home for dinner. He had that time there. He finished his task and he had those three or four hours that remained in his day. He left that there as an open slot for anybody that would interrupt because the interruptions would always come. People would knock on the door. I need to talk to you. Can I ask this? Can I have this? He could get a phone call. And that, those four hours wound up getting spread out throughout the week, and he wound up working till the time to clock out at the end of Friday. But he had that cushion. He understood that there was a time during the week when he planned on getting interrupted, and not just on Friday afternoon. Do you have any margin in your life? Me, if you're like me, you so often just have so much going on, so many meetings, so many programs, so many things, all the things that are going on that if somebody interrupts, it's like everything gets thrown off track. And then everything is late. 
and everything is behind schedule. But life happens on the journey, not at the end of the journey. And there have been stories of missionaries who are working in tribal areas, primitive cultures, and maybe they're building a new um, school or a medical clinic or they're translating the scriptures or they're providing medical care and they would maybe be you know, working on the work and they would just constantly get interrupted. The native people coming over and asking questions or just watching or saying, you should really try to do it this way and not that way. And you know, they would be doing all this interruption and he would get so frustrated, I'm not getting my job done. And that's when he realized I am getting my job done because this is the job getting to know these people, winning these people's trust, listening to their issues, their problems, their needs. But that doesn't happen at the end of the journey when the building is built or the clinic is fully staffed or the airstrip has been constructed. It happens, it happens through relationships. A group of pastors out in Colorado met with the the mayor of their town and said, what can we do as a group of churches to serve our community? And he said, programs come and go, but relationships remain. And that's why Jesus did not give a program. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. But we've got to be willing to overcome and deal with this problem of the lack of margin. We've got to plan on time and say our neighbors are a big enough rock that we're going to put in our schedule so that we can get these things done. And if I love my neighbor... Maybe my grass doesn't get mowed, but I love my neighbor. Maybe the weeds aren't pulled out of the garden, but I love my neighbor. Maybe I didn't get that last chapter of the book read or that last episode of that series that I'm watching, binge watching. Maybe it doesn't get done, but I love my neighbor as myself. I'm spending time with them. The third thing that the, the Samaritan shows us about how to be a good neighbor is this. It says that he then not only went to the man, he not only had compassion on the man, he also cared for the man with a continual caring. And you, you see that this was not just, here's five bucks, buddy, I hope this helps you. It was he stayed. He knelt down. It says that he, he bound up his wounds. Well, they, he didn't have a first aid kit for century Palestine. He didn't have a first aid kit. He didn't have any sanitary, sterilized gauze and, and you know, three-in-one you know, antibiotic. He didn't have anything like that. He's, he's tearing his, his own cloak, taking strips of cloth, and he's making bandages. He's, he's reaching up and taking off his donkey a flask of wine. He's pouring the wine in the wounds to disinfect. He's putting oil on the wounds to soothe the irritation. He's wrapping it up in the strips of cloth, and he's doing it to bind up the man, to give the man safety and health and security and comfort. And then he takes not only his own clothing, his own wine, his own oil to help the man, but he takes his own donkey and puts the man on the donkey. And he takes the man to the inn and he pulls money out of his own pocket. And he pays the innkeeper not only for that night's lodging, but he says, here's two days wages and whatever you need to take care of him for the next couple days, next couple weeks, take care of him. And if I owe you any more when I get back, I'll repay it. If you spend more than this. There was this idea of continual care. It was not just, I'm going to invite you to a program at my church and then, now we're done being friends or neighbors. 
It's we're going to keep being neighbors. We're going to keep caring for you. We're going to keep serving you. We're going to keep helping you. We're going to love you as we love ourselves. And the thing is, being a good neighbor and continuing the care, it works the other way as well. It's reciprocal. Sometimes you have to let them serve you and let them help you instead of always being the generous one, the, the one in position of, here, let me help you up because I got my act together. And the point is, is that sometimes we don't have our act together and we need them to come to the, to the rescue. All my snowblowers grew up, went to college, and moved away. <laughs> so my snow shovel, snowblower is right here like this. But I got two neighbors that have snowblowers. You better believe I'm a good neighbor. <laughs> because we help one another throughout the year and serve each other. And why do we do this? Why is this so important? Listen, contrary to what the sociologists and... Uh, philosophers may say this isn't about a social contract you know you've got to be kind to your neighbors so they'll be kind to you like me and the snowblowers it's bigger than that it's bigger than that God says in his word that you love him first and you love your neighbor as yourself he says those are the most important things there is no command greater than those two things nothing else you can give your life to is more important than that this is how you show you truly love God, by loving your neighbor. You can't say, I love God and I hate my neighbor. Those two don't work. If you hate your neighbor, you don't really love God. You hate him too. It's when you love your neighbor that you show you are a genuine, authentic follower of God. So often Christians say, I go to church. There's the fish symbol on the back of my car. I've got my Jesus saved bumper sticker. Look at me, I'm a Christian. And if the people around you say, but you don't love your neighbor, you tell racist jokes behind their back, you ignore him when he's in trouble, you don't even want to care for him, you don't spend time with them, you're not around them, you don't like them, they'll say, you don't, you don't love God. Because we know that in our heart of hearts. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. You've got to love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. Let's frame it this way. How many of you believe it's important to read your Bible? Maybe even every day. How many of you believe it's important to pray? Maybe even every day. Okay. How many of you think it's important to go to worship? I'm glad you're here. You voted by your feet. Thank you very much. <laughs> appreciate that. There are other things like that. You know, maybe it's practicing silence or fasting. These are spiritual disciplines, spiritual habits that I need to have. Loving your neighbor is a spiritual discipline. You will not grow spiritually if you do not love your neighbor. You will not. You're falling short because you don't really love God. And that's where it all starts. It's a spiritual discipline we have to practice. So we've got to love our neighbors. This is not optional in any way. We've got to love our neighbors. So let me just do a little quiz here. Uh, you know who lives in your house, I hope, okay. Who, who lives on this side of you? Do you know their names? Okay, do you know who's on this side? Okay, here's Jesse, here's Gary and Teresa, okay. How about across the street? Okay, there's Bob and Diane now, okay. Uh, here, who's back here, across the backyard? There's Earl and Alice, okay. What about those people? Or those, this is the hard one, those people behind you. Yeah, I'm still working on that one. Okay. 
it's great to know their names, but do you ever spend any time talking to them when you have the opportunity to do that? That's what we're called to do. You know, think about it this way. What is, what is one of those neighbors, who is one of those neighbors that you could just kind of start leaning toward and have a friendship for, for Jesus' sake with them, just to get to know them better? What is one small thing that you could start to do just to be a better, loving neighbor? Maybe it's forgiving them. Maybe it's just taking the time to talk to them. Maybe it's just offering to help them with the snow later this winter. Maybe it's lending something. Maybe it's borrowing something and giving it back in one piece. Yeah, don't be like the neighbor who is writing this letter. Dear Bob, I've lent you my snowblower and you break it up when you brought it back. I lent you my chainsaw and the chain came off after you used it. You walk your dog in my yard and you never clean up the mess. You have these parties and they're so loud and I ask you to turn the noise down and you turn it up louder. I'm just writing this letter to tell you, neighbor, that your house is on fire. (laughs) Happy New Year. Don't be, don't be that neighbor. <laughs> now the secret to all this of why we need to do this is because of what Jesus did at Christmas. Frank, would you show the next slide? In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched His tent and lived among us, and we saw His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. I like how Eugene Peterson, pastor who's passed away several years ago, how he, in his message paraphrase, said this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus moved into your neighborhood when he came to earth. He took upon himself flesh and blood and he lived among us. He knows all about you. He listens to you. He hears you. He's aware of you and your needs. In fact, he would say, you're just like that guy laying along the side of the road that's been robbed and abused, and ignored. And I've come to the rescue. He came and he took upon himself our suffering. He came and took upon himself our hurts and our pains. And he endured all of that, even bearing our sin and shame. And he goes to the cross and he dies in our place. And he rises from the dead and he's alive forevermore. And he loves you with a love that will never end and never die like the neighbor that you desperately need and want. And if he loves you like that and loves me like that, can't I love my neighbor like that? Can't I give to them? Can't I share with them? Can't I love them as I love myself? See, this is the secret to reframing that fear that we have. If I know that I'm loved and secure in Christ's love, then I can take the risk and embrace the messiness and the hurt and the dirt that comes with loving my neighbor. I can do that. 
because I'm loved and secure and provided for in Christ. I can make margin in my life because I already know the most important thing in my life is my relationship with God and he loves me perfectly and accepts me completely and I can take the risk of making time, pushing, not adding one more thing to my already busy schedule but removing some things that are not as important and I can put Christ first and I can love my neighbor as myself. The man that comes to Jesus and asks him about what's the greatest commandment when he finally finds out that it's love God and love your neighbor as yourself, the man tries to justify himself. He knows he doesn't measure up. He's making excuses. He's trying to justify himself. You and I spend a lot of our lives trying to justify ourselves. I want to impress you, God. I want to impress other people. I want to impress other folks. I want to feel good about myself. So we work so hard and we add so much to our schedules. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to justify yourself anymore. I love you and accept you just the way you are. You can let go of some of that busyness and that workaholism and running on that treadmill, that hamster wheel of your life. You can let go of that and you can make space, build margin into your life for other people because I already love and accept you and welcome you whether they do or not and you've got the freedom now to have margin because you don't have to make your work your idol to give you security and importance. You're free. And the other thing that is a danger that keeps us from really loving others is the problem of isolation, not just lack of margin and not just the fear, but it's isolation. And I don't know about you, but you know, I have a busy schedule and when I get home, I want to stay home. I don't want to be bothered. I want to watch a movie. I want to veg out. I want to eat something, you know, Salty, greasy, caffeine, you know, other stuff like that, sweet. And I just, I just want to, just kind of want to veg out. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want that phone call. I don't want that knock on the door, doorbell rung. I want to get in my little cocoon and zip it up and stay comfy and cozy. Me and Dawn, me and my kids, by myself. You know, butterflies never fly unless they get out of the cocoon. And somehow we've got to stop isolating ourselves in our homes. And I mean, some of the isolation is structural. I mean, air conditioning, what a great thing, greatest invention of the last century, as far as I'm concerned. But because of air conditioning, I stay inside on hot summer days. I don't want to go outside. Oh, there are bugs out there. There's, you sweat out there. I don't want that. We've got a backyard. We play in the backyard. My patio's in the backyard. It used to be that we had to do a lot of stuff out front. Now, I'm not saying that, please don't misunderstand me. Air conditioning is not of the devil. I'm not saying that. <laughs> and nor am I saying backyards are of the devil either. They're not. But somehow we've got to be willing to come outside. Somehow we've got to even let the emotional structures that just say, I don't have time for other people. I don't want to be around other people. I need some me time. And you do need silence and solitude and a Sabbath. But we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And because Christ came and we're secure in Him and provided in Him and safe in Him and comforted in Him and we're new living creatures in Him, I don't have to hide in isolation anymore either. I can go out because He already went out. He already became my neighbor, moved into my neighborhood and loved me 
loved me as himself, gave his life for me. So now I can love others and give my life for them as well. What can you do? What is one small thing you could do to start loving your neighbor more? What is one thing you could do? I'd like us to close in prayer now. Jesus, because you're our neighbor, we can love our neighbors. I thank you for that. I pray that, Lord, we would see how you came near us in compassion, how you gave yourself for us. I ask that, Father in heaven, that you would help us to truly, truly love our neighbors as ourselves because that's how you've loved us, Lord Jesus. And I pray that, Lord, we would be safe and secure in that love that you have for us. And while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just would like us to use this moment of quiet. And I want you just to picture one of your neighbors. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a student, has the locker next to you, or maybe it's someone in your dorm. Maybe it's you know, the person that lives beside you in your apartment or your neighborhood. Maybe, maybe you live in a very rural area and it's somebody that's over the hill from you or across the stream from you and you need to go to the borders to see them, the boundaries to see them. Whoever that person is, can you picture them in your mind's eye and can you just pray right now that God would bless them and show his love to them? And would you be willing to offer yourself and say, Jesus, because you love me, I'm willing to let you love my neighbor through me. I surrender. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Help us to love you with everything we've got and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our neighbor. Amen.